0: tonight we have a goal to finish something I don't know if we will but we need to finish it so just do a couple of things number one next Sunday when we start Romans right we will not be going to Romans 3 we'll be going directly to Romans chapter 1 verse 18 and following so all of the work you do needs to be on Romans 1 18 and following the reason we are doing this is because we've had two sermons in just the last few months one from the uh, President of the Southern Baptist Convention The other one from the pastor in Knoxville, Tennessee, from All Scriptures Baptist Church, I think it's the name of it. Um, Very different approaches to Romans 1. One is accused of basically um, almost being an apology to the LGBTQ community, almost uh, trying to argue that homosexuality is not that bad. That's how some characterize that sermon. I've posted it so you can listen to it for yourself. And then all the way on the other side, the pastor from Knoxville, Tennessee, calling for the government to execute uh, LGBTQ people and pretty much anyone associated with it and won't even let LGBTQ people attend their church services. Um, that's, a, that's a radically different approach to one passage of scripture. So because it's very relevant and right now, I don't wanna wait to get to Romans 1.18, I wanna jump right in hopefully next week. So start doing the work, read that passage over and 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 over, and over think about logical progression of thought think about uh, how you would structure an outline of the section see if you can outline it yourself Uh, just start trying everything you can to see as much as you know because we're going to be working through it painstakingly slow because clearly we need to work through it painstakingly slow not just because that's what I always do but because clearly I mean, how can you get two such radically different sermons from the same passage of Scripture? Um, clearly, there's got to be a way to read it, and so we're going to do our best to figure that out, all right? So keep that in mind. Um, and so, this morning, what, we are, well, what we've been trying to do is we've been trying to do work on Romans chapter 1, verse 2. Just a quick reminder, Romans chapter 1, verse 2 speaks of the gospel being promised beforehand, right, in the Old Testament, right? And the, and the scriptures, by the prophets, that the gospel was promised. So the original goal was for you to find five scriptures that, uh, from the Old Testament that contained a promise of the gospel. People found five passages of scripture. Some of them, you didn't really know if it was a promise of the gospel, but at least it was an attempt. Others kind of went with the idea, I'm going to quote, I'm going to find Old Testament passages that are quoted in the New Testament, which is exactly what I wanted people to do. When we went to some of those New Testament passages and looked at them, and they looked at the Old Testament passage, which they're quoting, we kind of thought, man, it almost looks like the New Testament writer is ripping the Old Testament passage out of its context, which is exactly what I want to discover. Once we discovered that, then I began to articulate the problem that time and time again, New Testament writers use Old Testament passages of Scripture in very questionable ways when it comes to hermeneutics and what they are doing. So we began a study and how to figure out how to understand what they are doing, all right? So, I came up with seven th- uh, views and how they handle it, all right? Does everybody remember? Let's just go quickly through them. We did it this morning, but I want you to have them memorized. What's the first one? Census Plenor view. everybody. Okay, I'm not going to review what they are. You, hopefully, you know. The Census Plenor view. The second one. The Jewish exegetical method, the third one. Canonical uh, reinterpretation view, next. Full human intent view, next. The eclectic view of the New Testament, next. The analogical uh, use of the Old Testament, next. Topological use of the Old Testament, and that was all of them. Okay, now, once we went through all of those, that gave you, the one I promote is the Eclectic view, and I gave you the steps and how to carry out the eclectic view. I'm not going to repeat them right now. Okay. Now, this morning, we started going through guidelines to, uh, uh, that you need to use to interpret how New Testament writers use Old Testament passages of Scripture. Now, in the middle of the, uh, the, the sermon, I kind of stopped everything because I started struggling with a concept. And the concept I was struggling with, and I want to make sure everybody understands what I was struggling with, is Protestants make a claim that we possess the power and the authority to interpret the Bible, right? We do not have to rely on a church council, we do not have to rely on a pope, we do not have to rely on the magisterium, we don't have to rely on a hierarchy of any kind. And this creates a Lone Ranger mentality in the minds of most Protestants. And the idea is, me, my Bible, and I'm good. Now, they, we, uh, church, uh, Protestants like past they, they want churches and they want pastors, but the reality is, if it comes down to the pastor's interpretation or the church member's interpretation, which one's going to ultimately win in theory? The church members, and the reason why is, if they don't like the pastors, they'll do what? Either they'll get rid of the pastor or they will leave and go to another church that agrees with them. All right. So that kind of destroys pastoral uh, authority in reality, not in principle, not in theory, because in theory everybody's like, yes, we're supposed to submit to the pastor, but in practice, no. So And so this becomes frustrating because if the, if the people want that kind of power, with that kind of power, I'm going to quote the Spider-Man movie, with that kind of power comes... Great, with great power comes great responsibility, okay? All right. it's, yeah, I mean, it's a cliche now, but yes. But there's truth to that. If you, as a, if you want to be, I reject all popes and magisteriums and councils and creeds, and I just want me and the Bible, right? Okay, well, then you have to be able to interpret it. Well, to be able to interpret it, you have to understand hermeneutics. And what have we discovered just with this subject? Is hermeneutics simple to understand? Is it complicated? It's even more complicated to do, right? It's easy to sit there and learn them, like, oh, give me the seven theories again, and you can go census planor, right? Okay, you can Jewish exegetical, right? Canonical reinterpretation, right? Full human intent view. You can name the views, but when when you start going through the New Testament, I'm like, hey, that New Testament writer quotes the Old Testament. Is that census planor? Is that canonical reinterpretation? Is that full human intent? Is that the analogical? Is that the topological? Is that the eclectic? And you're like, uh, I don't know. When, well, here's the thing. If, if, you know, if you don't know all of, and that's just one area of, of hermeneutics. Please note, when you look at the grand scope of hermeneutics, we're covering something that's like, this, you know, like a little dot of sand on a seashore. Right, and uh, this is a very complicated area. In fact, some would claim it's the most complicated of all areas. So, if you, if the average church member doesn't even know these things, then how can they therefore sit there and claim, "I can do it"? It's like, well, so I, so I, like, so when I started, when I was teaching it this morning, there's a part of me that's kind of stopped, and, and I just kind of wanted to go, "Well, what's?" what's the point like what how does it how does this work in the Protestant world right because we also have to take something into consideration the average person obvi- obviously doesn't have the time to do all of that work either correct I mean you got to be I got to be fair with that right so how, how does it work if they don't have the time to learn all of these principles they don't have the time to do all of these principles well then how can they therefore maintain the authority to do it I don't know how that works in the Protestant world and so sometimes it just makes me very frustrated with the whole system so I don't know the answer to some of those questions but I do know this everyone here owns a Bible correct all right and everyone here I hope engages the Bible to some degree at some point in time and I do know this that if you read Christian Christian posts on social media if you talk to Christians um if you listen to sermons you know what you hear over and over and over pastors christians mishandling the scriptures so all i know is the only thing i can do is teach you how to handle them correctly whether you do so i can't i can't make you i hope you can i can only all i can do is equip you right and then hopefully you will you will engage the text in a more Put it this way, even if you don't remember all of this, hopefully you now realize when I read the New Testament and I see them quoting the Old Testament, I need to remember that's a pretty important issue, right? And if I, if I can accomplish that, then maybe I will just change the way you read it. Maybe I can accomplish, I guess the thing is, am I going to accomplish anything with doing this? And sometimes it's just you don't know if you're really accomplishing anything. So I'm trying, all right? So here we go. Um, I'm not, I didn't post any of my sermons this morning because I wasn't happy with any, any of them. So I went home and recorded something else. So, So, so but hopefully tonight I can get this all done and we can get there. So, here are the guidelines for interpreting the New Testament use of the Old Testament. The first thing I want you to remember, this is not one of the points, but I want you to remember this. The New Testament use of the Old Testament is one of the most difficult issues in all of hermeneutics. The New Testament use of the Old Testament is one of the most difficult issues in all of hermeneutics. If you do not understand or recognize its difficulty then that means you have arrogantly read the New Testament citation of an Old Testament passage and treated it as if it wasn't complicated, when it is. All right. principle number one. Here we go. When the New Testament writers interpreted the Old Testament, they always did so according to the grammatical historical method of interpretation. When the New Testament writers interpreted the Old Testament, they always did so according to the grammatical historical method of interpretation. Now, some of you this morning asked a very good question, which was, always? Did they? Just the main thing to remember is this. This is the key here with this guideline. When the New Testament writers interpreted the Old Testament, not every time they used the Old Testament were they interpreting the Old Testament. They are making the claim that whenever you're reading the New Testament and they cite an Old Testament passage and clearly they're interpreting it, they're doing so using the, the historical grammatical method. Right? We, uh, we kind of reinstated it this morning and said it this way. Whenever you read the New Testament and they cite an Old Testament scripture, you need to go back to the Old Testament Scripture and at least consider it using grammatical historical method. Everybody got that? All right. Hopefully that makes sense. Um, but and, and why is that guideline so uh, important? They're trying to maintain the grammatical historical method. And that's the method that all of you would claim, at least in theory, to be the method you use. I don't know if you actually use it, but that's the method. Sometimes I know you don't, but... That's the one you're supposed to be using, all right? Number two, when the New Testament writers cited the Old Testament, they often did so without actually interpreting it. They don't always interpret the Old Testament passage. Sometimes they cite it, but they do not interpret it. That's important. Why? These are guidelines, right? When you're reading the New Testament and they're like, oh, he just just quoted Habakkuk 2.4. Is he interpreting Habakkuk 2.4? Get 13 Christians in a room and ask that question, you'll get 57 answers, right? Which it should be, that's not a good thing, all right? That's not, that's not a good, that's a bad thing, all right? Okay, next. When the New Testament writers cited the Old Testament without interpreting it, they often did so to highlight some kind of analogical or typological relationship between the two passages or situations, right? When the writer cited the Old Testament without interpreting it, they often did so to highlight some kind of analogical or typological relationship between the two passages or situations. What does that mean? Sometimes when you're reading the New Testament and you say, oh, they're citing the Old Testament, you make the determination, okay, they're not interpreting it. Oh, maybe they're trying to find an analogical or typological connection right? Everybody understand analogical, typological? I can't go through all of them again. Just think of it as they're drawing some kind of parallel. There's some kind of connection. They're just, they're borrowing something from it, right? Remember, a typology is something happened in the Old Testament, and they're going to use it as a type of something in the New. Analogical is more like a connection or an analogy. Oh, uh, Brenda found in Romans, was it Romans 2 you were looking at, or Romans 1? can't remember where you were at I think it was Romans 1 Romans 2. oh yeah Romans 2 yeah Romans two twenty four, and you connected that with Isaiah right okay well in Isaiah you got the Jews who appear to be blaspheming the name of the God because of what the Gentiles are doing to them and Romans Paul uses the concept well now the Gentiles are blaspheming the name of the God because of something the Jews are doing he's kind of drawing an analogy he's not trying to reinterpret or interpret the Old Testament passage he's drawing a parallel there that's kind of he's kind of flipping the Old Testament passage around to try to add some conviction there once you see the parallel the analogy it becomes better but a lot of people don't even bother to try to figure out what's going on in those situations all right so everybody understand that one got it what's the main thing to realize sometimes They may be interpreting the Old Testament passage. Sometimes they're not interpreting, and if they're not interpreting, what are they doing? Possibly using it in an analogical or topological way. Everybody got that? All right. Next. Um, The fact that the New Testament writer cites an Old Testament passage does not mean that an actual prediction has been fulfilled. The fact that the New Testament writer cites an Old Testament passage does not mean that an actual prediction has been fulfilled even if he uses fulfillment terminology. Even if the New Testament writer says he did this to fulfill doesn't mean it's a fulfillment. Well, he, he uses the term. Now, we have to make the determination is it a fulfillment or not. Sometimes it's not an actual fulfillment. Now I know you're going to go, well, then how do I make the determination? Well, we're getting ready to learn that in the next guideline, if you remember. Okay, so everybody remember that one? The fact that the New Testament writer cites an Old Testament passage does not mean that an actual prediction has been fulfilled. Even if fulfillment uh, terminology is used. You want to create a debate with your Christian friends? Find a New Testament passage where they quote it an Old Testament passage and they say, and it was fulfilled, and you say, that's not a fulfillment. <laughs> They'll look at you like you're absolutely lost your mind. Now they've never read a hermeneutic textbook once in their life, but they'll still argue with you because they think they know what they're talking about. It's not always a fulfillment. What's the best example that we've provided now, like 13 times? Yeah, Matthew 2:15 says it's a fulfillment of Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. Duh, no, something doesn't make sense there. All right. And so, how do you know when it's a fulfillment? How do you know when it's not a fulfillment? That leads us to the next principle, which was, does everybody remember? An Old Testament passage should only be considered predictive when that is clear from the Old Testament passage itself as interpreted in its own historical and literary context. An Old Testament passage should only be considered predictive when that is clear from the Old Testament passage itself as interpreted in its own historical and literary context. What does that mean? Before you say that a New Testament writer is telling you, right, that an Old Testament passage has been fulfilled, you've got to go back to the Old Testament passage and interpret it using what? The grammatical historical method. And if it is a clear prediction and the New Testament writer says it's fulfilled, then you say it was a fulfillment. Has everybody got that? Okay. All right. I know that raises lots of interpretive questions, but these are guidelines to help, help you. All right. Any questions there? Everybody good? All right. The, interpretive, the interpreter should resist the temptation to simply assume the purpose of the Old Testament citation and should instead take each New Testament use of the Old Testament on a case-by-case basis. The interpreter should not should resist the temptation to simply assume the purpose of the Old Testament citation and should instead take each New Testament use of the Old Testament on a case-by-case basis. Don't assume you know why a New Testament writer is quoting an Old Testament verse. Don't assume. And guess what this also tells you? There's not one fits all. Each New Testament writer citing a different Old Testament passage does so for different purposes, for different reasons, at different times. That's why the eclectic view is the one that really fits here. Right? Everybody got that? Yes? Okay. Now, let's continue. Now, they've got this broken down into kind of a different section, but I'm just going to continue to go with guidelines here. I'm not going to break it down the way they do to complicate this. I'm going to just go straight for it as all guidelines, okay? I know why they do this because for test purposes, but weren't your, I'm not going to give you a test today. Okay, maybe tomorrow. Okay, now, what, here. Everybody, everybody got this? All right, so we all on the same page so far? All right, pretty straightforward guidelines if you simplify them. All right, I think so. Okay, here we go. Next guideline. Identify which Old Testament passages were cited by the New Testament writer. This is a simple guideline. If you're the New Testament writer Is supposedly citing an Old Testament passage. Your job is to do what? Identify which passages are cited by the New Testament writer. Figure out what they're citing. What they're referencing. Now, it's super simple in 2019, isn't it? A, most of your Bibles have a little letter, and then they have a cross-reference that tells you, hey, that's what they're citing, right? Now, sometimes, what do you get when you're trying to figure out what they're citing? You're like, sometimes, well, that sounded kind of like that. Wait, that kind of sounded like, like sometimes it looks like they combine two passages together. And you're like, wait, what are they going? And sometimes it's not a direct citation, is it? Sometimes they're citing the Septuagint, which raises lots of questions. Why is the New Testament writer quoting the Septuagint and not the original, right? Because Septuagint was a cut, like, this raises questions about interp- uh, inspiration and raises lots of, of questions about the canon and all kinds of other issues, but we won't get into that. So, identify which Old Testament passages were cited by the New Testament writer. Determine, here's the next step, determine whether the New Testament writer quoted, paraphrased, or merely alluded to the Old Testament passage. Determine whether the New Testament writer quoted, paraphrased, or merely alluded to the Old Testament passage. Now, why do you think that would be important? Well, if he quotes it, okay, let's just think of it this way. If he quotes it, then there's a good chance he's trying to use the whole verse to make a point, right? Right? In other words, that could give a clue that maybe he's getting ready to interpret it, right? That may be giving a clue that uh, it's a fulfillment of, right? It could be a clue that, wait, he want, he's taking that whole verse. If he simply paraphrases it or alludes to it, what could that be an indication of? If he simply paraphrases or alludes to it, what could that be a indicator, an indicator of? An analogy or a typology, or or he's just doing what? Loosely borrowing the same language, right? He's not necessarily trying to reinterpret it. He's not even offering an interpretation. He's just trying to borrow the language. Like uh, Brenda, the passage you look at, he focused on the word uh, blasphemed, right? I don't think he even cited the uh, whole passage uh, in Romans 2, okay? I I think he just borrowed part of it because he's focusing on blasphemed. So sometimes it's just like you're showing you I am just borrowing this concept. I'm just I'm just alluding to this. I'm not trying to interpret it. I'm not trying to reinterpret it. I'm not trying to say it predicts anything. I'm just borrowing from it. Did you have something? Yeah, going back one. Uh-huh. Are cited? Sounds like one. sometimes there is. No, you're, you're, uh, if that New Testament writer, when he cites something, if you think he's citing three different Old Testament passages, you've got to find all three. Okay. Okay. Sometimes he may just be alluding to one. Sometimes it may be, you've got to figure that out. I just to make sure it wasn't, you weren't trying to look at the whole scope of the Maybe see How been, right? Oh, now that's a good, that would be a good exercise. Um, but I think if you're working through a book, you'll get that exercise. But that, you know, that would be a good step. If I was doing a Bible study method on this, I would make that a requirement. But this is guidelines, so it's not a Bible study method. But, yeah, that's, that's a good idea. Um, and if everybody didn't understand what Seth was saying, Seth is saying, um, am I saying by that guideline that what you need to do is, say, start with Paul? Look at how Paul uses Old Testament passages in totality. Right, And then you'll go, oh, this kind of gives me a way, an understanding of how Paul does it all the time. But I'm not, that's not what I'm saying to do right here. Right here is just like if I'm, if I'm reading in Romans 2 and I'm like, oh, Paul, I think he's referencing the Old Testament here. I've got to figure out every passage he's referencing. All right, does that make sense? Okay, that's a good question. All right, so far, everybody got that? Now, everybody understand, again, why it's important to determine whether they're quoting, paraphrasing, or alluding. Everybody see why? A direct quote is a a clue. And what's it a clue of? That possibly he's either interpreting, reinterpreting, or trying to say it was fulfilled. I'm not saying this is always the case. This is general principles. If he's simply paraphrasing or alluding, it's possibly a clue that he's doing what? Or you could just say, he's bar- he could be borrowing a word, he could be borrowing a concept, he's just trying to draw a connection, he's not necessarily interpreting. Or you could, you could throw down analogical, topological. Right? That's, a, uh, that's what you call a hint, that's a clue. Remember, Bible study is like being a detective, right? And your job is to find the clues. The better you are at finding clues, Better you are at solving the mystery, right? Okay. Some people are good at finding clues. Some people, not so much. So far, so good? All right. Next, determine whether the New Testament writer has altered the Old Testament passage in any way. Determine whether the New Testament writer has altered the Old Testament passage in any way. What do you mean, altered? What do you think they mean by altered? (laughs) Yeah. Right. Well, that may be a paraphrase or alluding. Okay. Okay. That could be a bad reference. I mean, we always have to determine if it's an actual reference or not. What do they could mean by alter? Well, let me give you an example. Matthew 2.15 and Hosea 11.1. I'm going to continue to go to that like a million times. Why? What's altered? Matthew 2.15 is, is speaking of what happening? Jesus coming out of Egypt? Right? Is that what it's... Go, go look at it. Everybody look at it. Matthew 2.15. Just Make sure. It's open book. You Don't be afraid to look. Matthew 2, everybody got it? Verse 15. Right, We'll go uh, verse 13 for um, context. And when they were departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother and flee into Egypt, right? And be thou there until I bring thee word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. And when he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed into Egypt, and, and was there until the death of Herod that it might be fulfilled which is spoken of the Lord by the prophet saying, Out of Egypt have I called my son. Alright, well the context is going into Egypt and they're going to be there until Herod dies, right? Now, and then uh, they make a reference to Hosea 11.1. 1. They, they say it's fulfilled, right? Okay. Well, Hosea 11.1 1 is speaking of Israel coming... So, he alters it in the sense that he takes a passage that was about Israel and makes it about Jesus. There is an alteration going on. Also, the context of Matthew is about going in. Now, we've got to go in before he comes out. I understand that. But it would seem to make better sense that you would cite this when they come out of Egypt, right? So, it just, the whole thing seems odd. Now, sometimes the, the, here's the key. Just determine if they've altered it in some way and identify what they've altered. It may be altered the way they cite it. You just determine what the, what the, how they've altered it. Your job is to observe that. What's the number one skill in Bible study and hermeneutics? Observation. Let me say that again. What is the number one skill in Bible study and hermeneutics? Not interpretation. The number one skill is you cannot interpret what you do not observe. The quality of your observation determines the quality of your interpretation. Right? So if you don't observe it in the text, right? Like um, um, well, like for example, last week our focus was John 10:10, and I asked two questions. Who is the thief? And what does it mean? that he comes to give us life more abundantly, right? Because my questions were based off observing those two questions in it. Today, I recorded one for this week's scripture focus, John 17, and I asked three questions, right? Those questions are just observation questions, right? I'm just, I'm observing something in the text and asking a question about the observation, right? So, you've gotta learn how to do that. You've gotta learn how to, to you've gotta to learn to do observation. You've got to learn to do observation. Right? And, observa- and how, do you know, how do you know if you're any good at observation? How good are you at outlining a text? All outlining is, is supposed to be. What is outlining supposed to be? Observa- it's not supposed to be. Remember we kept having this problem in our revelation outlines? right? And I kept changing everybody's outlines. Because I was like, you're interpreting, you're not... Observing don't interpret observe don't interpret observe right observation outlining is a good way being able to determine what just seeing little things in the text like When you're reading the New Testament, and you see them cite in Old Testament your observation should have stopped you up years ago and going wait a minute Some here doesn't make sense so now Here, you're taking those observational skills and you're applying them, and how are you applying them? You've got to determine, has the New Testament writer altered the Old Testament passage in any way? You've got to figure out what is altered. You're just observing it. You're not answering why, but the fact that it's been altered should be what? It's a clue. It's a clue of something, right? It's telling you, it's giving you a clue that the New Testament writer is doing something here. I think, for example, Romans 1.17 I think Paul is altering something in the way he's using Habakkuk 2.4. Right? I'm still perplexed. And I think that we're reading, I think we're maybe reading something into Paul that may not actually be there. But we, we won't be able to study verse 17 for a while because that one leads me to all kinds of questions. All right, Everybody got that one? Yes? Next. Interpret the Old Testament passage in its own Historical and literary context. Interpret the Old Testament passage in its own historical and literary context. What does that mean? In practical, everyday use. You're reading your Bible, right? You're reading. You're in Romans, right? You're going along. Also, Paul cites an Old Testament passage of Scripture. What does that mean you have to do? Right then, right there. I've already given you some observations you're supposed to do, but then you're supposed to stop, go to the Old Testament passage and do what? Interpret it using the grammatical historical method. you have gonna have to go observe the Old Testament passage, make those observations of what's going on, and then come up with an interpretation. You cannot understand the New Testament writer. You cannot make any conclusion about the New Testament writer's use of it until you determine what is going on in the Old Testament. Does that make sense? And if you cannot cite, and this is a, this is a great way. If you're ever having a back and forth with a Christian, right? Maybe you're having some back and forth, a debate or an argument on Facebook or at a family get-together and you're talking about some New Testament passage where they cite an Old Testament, and they want to start arguing with you, you stop the conversation this way. Please tell me the historical, grammatical interpretation of the Old Testament passage that's being cited. If they can't, they have no right to interpret the New Testament passage. Don't allow them to interpret it. Tell them right to their face. Your interpretation is wrong. I don't care even if it's right. It's wrong because they didn't go do the historical grammatical method to the Old Testament. So their entire hermeneutical method is wrong. I don't care if they got it right by chance. They're still wrong. They did it the wrong way. And you've got to do it the right way to be right. Okay? It's not, it's not flip a coin and, oh, I got it right. No, 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 no. and, and, and hermeneutics, it's just like in math. Okay? And I hate math, right? So in math, it doesn't matter if you can come up with the right answer. You've got to show your work, okay, which is, I think, evil, right? But in hermeneutics, it's good. In math, it's evil, right? Because we got calculators, so as long as I come up with the answer, it doesn't matter, okay? But in hermeneutics, it matters, right? So make them show their work. They haven't done the work, don't, they're wrong. That, that, you should just know that about me. If you're going to come to me with an argument, if you don't have your work, you're wrong. I'm just going to say you're wrong even if I think you're right. And if you never come back with your work, then you're always wrong. Because you're not willing to go do the work that is required. Does that make sense? That's that's just you just need a, that's the way it has to work in hermeneutics because because we're, we're dealing with God's word. Right? I thought that that's important, right? Okay, so that's that's key. Next, You interpret the New Testament passage in its own historical grammatical context. So after you've done the Old Testament passage, now what do you do? Now you go to the New Testament and guess what you do? The historical grammatical or grammatical historical, I know I keep saying them different ways, but the grammatical historical method. Now you run that on the New Testament passage. Now, what do you think is going to be accomplished at that point? You're going to know what the Old Testament writer was doing. You're going to understand what the Old Testament writer was trying to say. You're going to understand the historical context. You're going to understand all the grammatical issues that are, pertaining, or that are found in the text. And now when you go to the New Testament, guess what you're going to discover? What the New Testament writer is doing You're gonna understand the context, the historical context, the literary context, and the grammatical context, and guess what? Immediately, what are you going to start seeing? Either agreement or vast disagreement, but your understanding will be based off knowledge, not speculation and guessing, or a poorly written commentary. So far, so good? All right, we're almost done. Next. Seek to determine the relationship between the two passages. <laughs> oh, the, the last point just cracks me up here. Okay, well, As soon as I look down and see the last point, I just start laughing. All right. Seek to determine the relationship between the two passages. Now, you sh- you're going to be able to see the, the relationship pretty clearly now, right? Why? You've done the historical-grammatical method on the old. You've done it on the new. You know what both are trying to say. You're going to be able to determine the relationship here. What, what's, what's the connection? What's the con- Sometimes you may go, I think the only connection is both passages uses the word Egypt, right? Okay. I think that's the only connection. Right? Okay. Sometimes you may be going, oh, oh, okay, like like the one you pointed out. That, that's a really interesting connection because here. The Jews are blaspheming God because of them. And now Paul is blaming the Jews for the reason the Gentiles are blaspheming God. That, that flipping the story makes you, now you get a kind of relationship between the two. Now you kind of see what the writer is trying to do. Does that make sense? All right. So seek to determine the relationship between. Next, seek to discern. How and why the writer is using the Old Testament passage in his New Testament context. Seek to discern how and why the writer is using the Old Testament passage in his New Testament context. How and why. How is he using it and why is he using it? Why is Paul in Romans 1.17 using Habakkuk 2.4? Why? How is he using it? I still don't really know, but that's what you need to discern, the how and the why. Any questions on that? No? All right. (laughs) The the last one makes me laugh. All right, you ready? Continue (laughs) to read and interact with helpful resources on this difficult issue. Continue to read and interact with helpful resources on this difficult issue. Why I think that's funny is after all of those steps What do they uh, basically know what's going to happen? You're still going to be confused, okay after going through all of these steps. You're still going to be confused So they offer a number of resources to use and a number of books But doesn't matter because they're all big thick books that nobody's going to read so so don't worry about that Um, So, okay, what what should be some practical lessons we should take away from this? All right? What are some practical lessons we should take away from this? Um, Now, this one's hard. Okay, you you notice notice that when you kind of start getting into hermeneutics, you, you start discovering something, right? And what you discover is that the Bible is not easily interpreted. Now, I know that that causes questions about the perspicuity of Scripture. um, And some will get very mad if I call that doctrine into question. I I greatly question the perspicuity of Scripture. I'm not a a great supporter of that view. Um, I know that's a hallmark of the Protestant world. But um, I just don't think it is easy. So here, here are probably some things that we need to take away. Um, we need to acknowledge understanding of the Bible requires work. We need to acknowledge understanding of the Bible requires work. Right? Let me give you an example. All this week, I, you know, um, A lot of times, uh, I'll use the app or one of the podcasts to try to do a week-long focus on something, right? So this week was John 10.10. Now, John 10.10 looks relatively... Everybody open the Bible. You can look at John 10.10 really quick. I'm not going to redo everything I did this week. But John 10.10. John 10.10 reads, The thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. All right. There's been nine million sermons preached on this. It's quoted in Christian devotionals all the time. It's all over in Christian books. And time and time again, John 10.10 will be read and stated that, hey, that there's a contrast here between the thief and Jesus, right? And the thief is Satan. Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but Jesus comes to give life. It's how it's preached, it's how it's cited. The only problem is, if you start doing a little bit of work, uh, that thief there can't be Satan. All right, because the context begins in chapter 9, Jesus heals the blind man, there's lots of questions about the legitimacy of this miracle, and the Pharisees step in. And when the Pharisees step in, they're kind of like, Hey man, hey, hey. We don't really care that you got healed. We don't even really care that you can see. What we care is that you give us some information so that we can accuse Jesus of all kinds of like Sabbath breaking and being wrong. And the man doesn't play along, right? The man's like, oh, you want to be his disciples? Hey, 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 you know, hey, don't, hey, I can see guys. Is anybody happy? And they pretty much after a while, they say, you got to go. They want to kick him out. Their religious system is going to kick him out in a sense. They're going to kill, they're going to steal, and they're going to destroy everyone they infect because they're going to give them a false truth, a false gospel, a false way of believing, and it's going to steal, it's going to kill, and it's going to destroy. You go right, you flow right in. John chapter 9 ends with Jesus going after the Pharisees, and chapter 10 flows right into Jesus continuing. If you start in John chapter 10, verse 1 and following, look at the pronouns Jesus is using. He speaks about them and they. Who is the them and they he's referring to? The Pharisees that he started talking to at the end of chapter 9. So when he flows all the way through, the, the thief has to be referenced to false teachers, to the Pharisees, in contrast to Jesus. They kill, still and destroy people. Jesus came to give people life and give it more abundantly, right? That's the concept. That obviously is not super easy to figure out because how many Christians of you know who cite that as being Satan? That's the way you've heard it, and you heard it in churches. Yeah, i heard it in churches. I've right? heard it on Christian radio. I've probably got who knows how many Christian books. Where did that come from? Now, if it's so simple, then how, because there's nowhere in John 9 or John 10 leading up to this passage is Satan ever mentioned. Where, how did Satan get there? They just take 10 and re- remove it from what? The entire narrative that started in chapter 9. Okay, they just destroyed the context. If, you, if I stepped up in most churches and tried to argue that, people would be like, no, no, I've got a verse over here that talks about Satan being a thief. i got a verse over here about Satan killing. Whoa, whoa, slow down. Nobody's saying that Satan doesn't bear those characteristics, right? But what we're saying is, is John 10, 10 giving us a theological understanding of Satan, or is he doing something else? But they import cross-references to places where cross-references don't belong, because they don't even know how to do what? Basic cross-referencing, right? Most people don't even know how to do cross-referencing. What do they look for? How does most people do cross-referencing? Common word. They use the same word, they have to connect. Just because they use the same word doesn't mean they connect, right? It doesn't work that way, right? You've gotta know how to do cross-referencing. If Christians can't even know how to, if most Christians don't even know how to do cross-referencing right, well then, do the, then interpreting the Bible is not what? Easy. We have to acknowledge it's not easy to interpret. I'm not saying every passage is equally difficult, because not every passage is equally difficult, but John 10.10 seems pretty straightforward, yet that's even been messed up by seminary-trained pastors. There's a book, um, I can't remember the name of it, it's basically like the, the, the uh, most misunderstood verses in the entire Bible. And John 10.10 10 is listed as one of the most misunderstood verses in the entire Bible. How is that even humanly possible that it could be that, that it makes a list? <laughs> How can it make a list? It's not that complicated. But why did it become complicated? It became complicated because of the arrogance, and I'm, I'm going to blame the Protestant Reformation, the Protestant Reformation gave Christians some arrogant thought that they have the power to do it, even though they don't actually possess the power to do it. Right? Because your power, your power your, I mean, that's why we, were, that's, that was the reason I went to Augustine when we were going through Augustine's book, is because I wanted to demonstrate, what did Augustine say your, your power to interpret comes from? Yeah, your understanding of ordinary tools of interpretation, which how you would apply, how you would interpret literature, how would you interpret movies, TV shows, music. If you can't do that, you can't do this. Why? The basic skills of interpretation apply to all literary forms, right? and most uh, other forms of interpretation apply to other forms of narrative or other forms of storytelling, right? Whether it's movie, whether it's in a music, it's right here. Okay? That, like, that's, and most Christians clearly lack the ability to interpret things. They don't, you know, I'm a Christian, I can do it. We have to acknowledge the complexity of it. 300 times, around 300 times, New Testament writers are going to cite Old Testament passages. That alone, that's a small section of the Bible, right? But that alone is complicated. Well, are there other issues that are complicated? And precatory psalms, are they not complicated? You've got the psalmist calling for the death of people. Well, when... Obama was elected. You had Christians quoting imprecatory psalms to call for the death of Obama. That's it. <laughs> Way to go, Christians! Yay! Let's pray for the death of a president because we don't like him. Yay! Whoa, that's, that's good stuff. Oh, wait. And the sermon from the Knoxville pastor, what does he use as his argument that uh, homosexuals should be put to death? He uses Leviticus chapter 20. Yeah. Genius. He doesn't go through all the things that Leviticus 20 calls for people to be put to death for because kids who speak back to their parents should be put to death according to Leviticus. I bet he doesn't have any kids in that church who should be put to death? Why doesn't he mention the authorities coming in to get them? There's all kinds of reasons people were put to death in the Old Testament, right? Idolatry, right? Okay, adultery, right? We can go all, we can go all day, right? Okay. Some things that you don't like, really, that was a death penalty placed on that? How come he just forgot all of those? Well, now he's mixing civil law, right? He's taking civil law under a theocracy, trying to move the 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 theocratic law, trying to pull that over to a representative republic (laughs) in 2009. Like, his whole understanding is broken. And that's a pastor doing that. Now, if pastors can't get it right... The average person can. I, 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 I have a heart. And again, Catholics just laugh at us having this conversation. They're just there, just like, <laughs> Protestants are so dumb. <laughs> when are they ever going to learn? When are they ever going to learn? And you, and you can't get mad at Catholics for laughing at us because we appear dumb, right? Hey, we can do it. And I'm like, well, you've been, you've done such a good job since the Reformation. Y'all have got more denominations than you can count. You, you, you're. you're are so good at it they're brilliant I wish we were as smart as you they're like we got our own problems but at least we don't have nine million denominations right so that's 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 something we have to take so I just want you whenever you open the Bible acknowledge that it's not as simple as you think it is it's not as simple as you think it is everybody got that all right number two it's going to require dedication and work it's going to require dedication and work now if you acknowledge that it's difficult then that leads to number two right it's going to require dedication and work now how do how do we understand this in the in the Protestant world I don't really know Because this becomes a question of what the average Christian life should look like. Right? This becomes a question about this. And I've struggled with this my whole Christian life. Because, I man, I was a church member for a long time. I was a bivocational pastor for a long time. Now, when it comes to the average Christian, what, what is the minimum expectation when it comes to them and the Word of God? Like, what, what should you expect? I don't know. You know, I had my friend in Nebraska. You know, he believed all entertainment was wrong. So he believed you work and you come home and you spend the rest of the time with the Bible. Right? That's what you do. When you're not working, you're spending time with the Bible. Not everyone's, obviously everyone thought he was insane. So that didn't work out so good. So, I mean, even he thought, people in church thought he was crazy. So, you know, he, he didn't have any Christian friends, okay, because all Christians thought he was crazy. So I don't know what it's supposed to look like, but I think we can agree on this. We would all agree that the Bible definitely implores Christians to be involved with the Word of God on somewhat of a regular and consistent basis. There's no way to get around that. You can make all the excuses in the world you can't get around that. I do know this, that whenever you're involved with the Word of God, you should first acknowledge that whatever you're reading, whatever you're hearing, right, that it's going to require some work and dedication to do so. And either you're going to put forth the work and the dedication or you're not. If you're not going to put forth the work and dedication, what should be your approach? If you do not put in the work and dedication, what should be your mindset? Okay, well, be willing to listen to those and do, and don't be so, be teachable, right? Be teachable. Be be willing to go, wait a minute, Why? maybe I shouldn't argue about this. Maybe I shouldn't argue. I've always, it always baffles me how people argue about concepts which they clearly have never studied. It always confuses me. Whether they're arguing, they can be arguing about abortion, they can be arguing about gun control, and they've never really studied the issues. Um, He's been all over the news the last two weeks. Uh, Steven Crowder, he's one of the most popular conservatives um, on YouTube, and then YouTube went after him and demonetized him not for violating any policy because they can't find a policy he violated, but it's created a big controversy, and I've been bothered by this whole situation, keep telling everyone we gotta wake up and pay attention to what's going on because crazy things are happening to conservative Christian voices, but okay. But one of the things Steven Crowder does, he does these things where it's called change my mind. Goes to a college campus, finds some public area, sets up a table, right? Sets up a table right here. Has a microphone, has some cameras, And on the front of the table, it puts a sign that says, um, uh, hate speech doesn't exist. Change my mind. Right? Um, I'm pro-life. Change my mind. I'm pro-gun. Change my mind. And just all kinds of, you know, different, just you name the topic. Something controversial, but something relevant. Okay? And, of course, as soon as he sets that table up, college kids jump out of their dorms to come running for confrontation. Right? Now, some of them are yell and scream and I can't repeat the things that are screamed at him. The school administrators get mad. They usually call the cops on him trying to get shut down even if he has a permit because they don't want him anywhere near the college kids because he's going to go with a different you know, viewpoint, which is just crazy, like shut down free speech in 2019. But what he does, what I love about his approach, and I've watched hours and hours and hours of these things, is he has a long-term conversation with the college kid, Right? And he asks questions, and he tries to make sure he remains respectful. Now, if the college kid becomes a smart aleck, Crowder will destroy you in the most cruel, harsh, (laughs) mean way. Like, he will become so sarcastic and just destroy the poor kid. Uh, But he always tries to make sure, and he tells the crowd to be quiet. He won't allow the crowd to jump in on the person. But it's it's supposed to be a long-term conversation about a subject, not sound bites or gotcha right? It's not like, oh, he's, he's waiting to say, I gotcha. He lets them have time. Like it may go 30 minutes. It may go 45 minutes for one conversation. It may go an hour, right? And it's great to listen to. But what will blow my mind is the kids there who clearly don't have any clue what they're talking about, right? And you're just like, I'm listening and I'm like, what are they saying? And it, sometimes he's looking at them like, You don't even understand the, but they, you know, they had a freshman class on something, right? Now they're an expert, right? Now they're an expert. And it's just amazing to hear these conversations. And it's like he was doing one on uh, the gun control. And it's like these kids don't even understand basic concepts about, like, they were wanting some guns banned, not even knowing what the term semi-automatic means. And he's like, you don't even know what that means, okay. Like, and just basic terminology. Hate speech, not even understanding the difference between hate speech and trying to give that a legal definition where there isn't one. You know, like all these different concepts. And it's just crazy that people jump in. Well, it reminds me of Christians with dealing with the Bible, right? If you aren't willing to do the work and study, then be humble enough to acknowledge you're not the expert. Right? And just because you're a Christian and just because you own a Bible, don't act like an expert. Now, that puts you in an awkward position, right? Because now, if I say something you don't like, or any other pastor, just in a generic sense, you can't argue. And you don't like that, right? You don't like, you want the ability to argue. But you can't argue about that which you don't know. Does that make sense? that was always my policy, right? Like, if I was at work and people were over here having some debate over a subject, if I didn't know something about it, I just... Oh, but if I knew, oh, I would step in. Now, it became a joke at the work. If, if, if Hamlet starts talking, probably don't argue, right? Because he probably is going to start citing st- 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 statistics and things that we don't know. But if I don't know it, I'm not going to get into an argument, Right? I'm not get, because I don't know that subject. Now, I may listen intently, go home and look everything up and read as many books as I can because I'm going to want to be involved in that argument the next day, but I'll wait until my time to, to, to talk because you can't speak when you don't know. Christians just have this weird, like, we believe we're born with it, right? I'm a Christian, I now understand it. And I can read and I can argue. You can read. You can't argue. What does that prove? That you're reading and arguing from a position of ignorance. Does that make sense? It's going to require work. That doesn't mean you can't do the work. See, that's the difference from, from us and the Catholic perspective. My perspective is, you can do the work. You do have the tools. Now, if you use them, then you have the freedom to speak up, right? But you've got to do the work. Does that make sense? Now, if you have done the work, what should your attitude be? Your attitude should always be, you've got to defend what you see in the text, you've got to speak up, you've got to try your best to present your view, but you always have to be willing to do what? Change your view. Always got to be willing to change your view. Always. I mean, I've changed plenty of views here, right? Okay. I'm willing to change any time, right? Any time I come to the text. What, what I previously believed has no bearing on what I'm currently studying. I know that drives people crazy when I say that. Past certainty is of no value during a present study. Everybody hear that? Past certainty is of no guarantee of present certainty. What determines present certainty? New study. (laughs) Right? Does that make sense? Because past certainty could have been what? Wrong! Correct? And the only way I'm going to ever find out if my past certainty was wrong is by studying the text again, differently. That's why I try not to use, I don't use past notes. Why do I not use past notes? If I use past notes, I'm only relying on Past certainty. You have to do, You have to be willing. You have to be willing to do that. You have to be willing to do that. You've got to be willing. You've got to be willing to do the work. Now, how does that show up in everyday life? Listen. You should do your best to, to allow yourself to be uh, to be to hear teaching, to hear preaching and to hear scripture, and to do what you can to engage scripture. Some weeks you're going to be able to do some, some weeks you're going to be able to do a lot, some weeks you may be able to do none. But you need to always be finding time that you can, right? Whenever, Obviously being at church whenever you can, whatever you can do so that you are being engaged with scripture. Obviously we have the app. You're getting, I mean, I play stuff there all the time. That's 24 hours a day. It's available to you. Do what you can. Do what you can. I mean, like, I always mention Family Radio, I'll just give you an example. This afternoon, Family Radio, I only listened for a couple of hours because I was, I was uh, reading other things and doing other things, but um, just from, just within about two hours of Family Radio this afternoon, they read almost the entire book of Nehemiah, no commentary. They read all of John chapter three, right? And they read multiple other scriptures with devotional thoughts. That, and plus all the hymns they played. So they did all of that within like a couple of, so just listening to family radio, I heard almost the entire book of Nehemiah read today without commentary, right? That's the kind of Christian radio where it actually feels like it's Christian radio, right? They're not giving you, you know, the Hollywood news. They're, they're actually talking about what's, you know, the scriptures. That That at least, like, That at least keeps the scriptures coming into your mind, right? That's continuing keeping you saturated with the scriptures that gives you the ability to start asking questions. Or like when we do the whole week-long focus on John 10.10. Not only did I do all my recordings on John 10.10, I posted, I don't know, four or five sermons from other sources on John 10.10. So by the end of the week, you work through the whole questions and come to an end. Not every week you can do that, but it's it's always going to be there. Like on the app this week, it's John 17.22 three questions on John 17:22. 22. is that 15 minutes long and give you the three questions. Start working on the three questions by the end of the week. You're there. You've got to be willing to do the work. Does that make sense? So when it comes to the book of Romans, next week we start verse 18. What are we going to find out really quick? That Paul's going to use Old Testament scripture, right? When he does so, you now are equipped to handle it. Right? Yes? Okay, okay. Well, you've got, right, but you've got the tools, right? Because that's, that, hermeneutics simply is giving you the tools. How do you become proficient at a tool? Using it over and over. That's how come I can't use tools. Because I have never used one, okay, right? <laughs> I, mean, I don't even know what they are. When hermeneutical tools, I'm ready to go. Okay? Those other tools, I don't know what they are, okay? But you see why? I haven't used them use increases ability right you have the tools so when we start going through romans you've got to be able to you've got them all written down correct this this sermon will be posted so um, all these will all been listed Um, if you need to go back and listen to them again they're there get these get these down i will be posting all of these notes on in the sermon bible study notes section on the app so If you missed one, they're all going to be right there underneath this sermon. All right, I'm just giving you the tools, but it's something to consider. I'm not not arguing against the perspicuity of Scripture, but I am arguing that the Scriptures are much harder to understand than people think they are. And they require work, they require time, and either you're going to put forth the effort, and if you don't put forth the effort, at least have the decency to show respect to people who have. And if you have put forth the effort, always be willing to do what? Change your mind. And don't use past certainty as present certainty. Past certainty was great. Now we're going to be, you may have studied John 17, 22 50 times. Well, if you're going to go follow along this week with our study of John 17, 22, you know what your past certainty means? Nothing. Right? Now we'll see what we discover in John seventeen twenty-two because there's three questions there we have to answer. Does that make sense? I hope that does. All right, let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this evening. Lord, it's been a long journey through all of these principles and trying to figure out how the New Testament writers use Old Testament scripture, but I pray that, that we have the tools and that everyone here will use these tools, not just for this problem, but with all hermeneutical problems. These, tool, these skills can be used in many different ways for many different problems, and I pray that we'll always be willing to do our best to understand scripture, but then not just be keep this knowledge, Share this knowledge and how to do this with any and everyone we know who claims to be a Christian so that they too can help themselves understand the scriptures and not be misled and not be um, hurt by false teachers. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said...